Good morning. Today's Bible reading is Two Thessalonians, Chapter One. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the Church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your presence. Perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just; He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, and give relief to you who are troubled. And to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. And from the majesty of his power, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people, and to be marvelled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believe our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of His calling, and that. By His power, He may fulfill every good purpose of yours, and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alina.、Uh, good morning, everyone. As we come to God's word this morning, let us pray. Our gracious and loving heavenly Father, Lord of life, holy, righteous, and true. As we come to your word this morning, as your people, we pray that you would speak to us, and that by your Holy Spirit you would apply to us. The wonderful truths and treasures of this precious passage, Father, comfort us and lead us, as it were, to the cross, and so on to glory. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name, Amen. Many are the trials and troubles of this calamitous life. 
But I want to encourage you today. In fact, this is the theme of today's message. I want to encourage you not to be cast down in the midst of those trials and troubles. For God is with you, and you are never alone in Christ Jesus. God's word today, this passage just read to us by Alina, declares God's communion with those who have believed in his son and are suffering for their faith. God loves you, and God cares for you. Don't be dismayed by the troubles you may face, though they be many. For suffering and hope are not mutually exclusive in the Christian life. We've seen in many times and places in the history of the world and of the church, places where people are persecuted and even killed for their faith in Jesus, as we've seen in Indonesia and Ambon and in many other places around the world. Suffering and hope are not mutually exclusive in the Christian life. They coexist. And that's why we need to maintain our faith, our love and our patience until Christ returns. From the opening prayer to the promise of relief for those who are troubled in verse 7, to the hope of glory when the name of our Lord Jesus is glorified in you, everything in God's word today is aimed at encouraging a faithful but troubled church. The church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ was a church under attack in Paul's day. And we know that around 49 AD, when Paul was in the city of Thessalonica, a man named Jason, a relatively new convert, was literally dragged from his home by a riotous mob and taken before the city officials. We read in Acts chapter 17 from verse 5 about this situation. And Luke tells us how the Jews were jealous So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Uh, Probably these days, I'd say it was a mostly peaceful riot. Uh, We've seen those sorts of things going on, haven't we? They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, They dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason, Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. Well, the world hates the name of Jesus. It still does today. So this morning I want you to put on Jason's sandals, the Jason who was attacked and dragged away from his home to the city officials. I want you to imagine the threat. Perhaps it's something you have faced, I don't know. Smell the fear, taste the danger, perhaps as you walk out your door on Monday morning to go to work. You'd be saying a little prayer of faith, wouldn't you, as you step out for the new day. See, this is the issue. How are you going to maintain your walk with the Lord in a time of trouble? How are you going to keep strong in your faith and not lose hope? That's what this letter, certainly the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, is all about. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to encourage Christians not to be discouraged by their trials in this calamitous life, 
but to persevere in their faith, knowing that God is in control. He's saying, don't give up, hang in there. God is in control. Jesus is coming back soon, but not yet. That's in chapter 2 next week. So be patient. Suffering and hope are not mutually exclusive in this life. They coexist. God is with you. You're doing okay. Just keep walking. So I have these four points to share with you today from our passage. First, that hope comes from the God who cares, in verses 1 and 2. Second, that Christian faith, Christian love, and Christian perseverance are a powerful witness to a fallen world, in verses 3 and 4. Third, that God is just, and he will uphold our righteous cause, in verses 5 to 10. And finally, that despite the trials of this life, we must continue to walk with the Lord until he returns, in verses 11 and 12. So now, let me tell you about the God who cares in verses 1 and 2. This is the foundation of our communion in Christ, the source of all our grace and comfort as Christians in a world that is often opposed to the God that we believe in and therefore opposed to us. We belong to the God who cares for us as a father, first of all, and also in Christ as a brother. Verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul always begins his letters with a prayer like this, a prayer of Christian blessing. And so it is here in verse 2, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a simple but powerful blessing. First of all, what is grace? Well, grace is God's undeserved favour, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's undeserved favour by which he reconciles us to himself and sustains us in our daily walk every moment of our lives. That's grace. And secondly, peace. What is peace? Well, peace picks up the Jewish idea of shalom, which is profound. It's the idea of a world living in obedience to God's word. Imagine that. Where human life flourishes without fear. Deep, abiding, relational peace. Shalom. Put them together and what you have is the Christian hope. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Paul's eyes and hopefully in ours, isn't it true that God is the hero, the deliverer, the saviour of his people? And our God is the God who cares. He is the God of grace, rich and abundant, and the God of peace, abiding and true. He is the good God whose love endures forever. He is the King of righteousness. He is the Prince of peace. And in verse 1, notice Paul calls him our Father. He is our Heavenly Father. 
to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look around you and ask yourself the question, who are we? Well, we are a church gathered together this morning, called by God to come and worship him. But who are we? Are we just a bunch of strangers who turn up Sunday by Sunday but have nothing else to do with each other? No. Who are we? And who is God calling us to be? Well, according to the Apostle Paul in our passage today, we are a church that belongs to God. In fact, we are in God, in verse 1. In God. That is, in covenant with God, in relationship with God, in love with God, and indwelt by God. What a mystery. How precious we are. Not because of who we are, but because God is with us. We are his children, and he is our father. And he cares for us with an everlasting love. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Asks the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. And uh, some of our groups have been looking at the Heidelberg Catechism just these past couple of weeks. And it uh, comes to mind as I'm thinking about our passage today. What is your only comfort in life and in death? There are many comforts in this world. What is the one comfort that really matters? Answer. That I am not my own but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What a wonderful confession of faith that is. It's a big vision for a little church. And for us today, this vision can help us in our troubles by encouraging us to persevere in our faith, knowing that God has promised never to leave us or forsake us, but that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Our God is the God who cares, and because he cares, we can persevere and even rejoice in our sufferings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only comfort in life and in death. Our God is the God who cares. Now my second point comes from Paul's wonderful prayer of thanksgiving in verses 3 and 4. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. We ought always to thank God for you brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is on the way up, increasing. This little church in Thessalonica, newly born and from pressure really from the time of its birth, 
is nevertheless a thriving community of faith. Isn't it impressive to see how this relatively new group of Christians are growing in their faith and increasing in their love one for another, despite the trials that they're enduring? Their faith, their love and their perseverance is growing by the power of the Holy Spirit, just like in today's kids' talk. And not just growing, but Paul says growing abundantly. I think of the grass in my backyard at the moment. How's your grass going? My grass is growing abundantly, very healthy, too healthy almost, thriving. But isn't it good to see love and faith thriving in a church? Paul's thankfulness to God for what he sees in the lives of this Christian community is also a huge encouragement to the church. When people see the good things that God is doing in the lives of others, perhaps in the lives of you, and then encourage you in them, well, that, that puts a smile on everyone's face. To see what God is doing that's good and to recognise it and acknowledge it, it it's, it's uplifting. This is godly praise, and when praise is godly, it gives you a lift. By the way, I think this is true not only in the church, but it has its application in the wider community as well. This is Christians who are aware of God's good work in our lives. We can also have a, a big impact on the people around us in the local community by the way that we speak and treat them. I've got an example just from this week. Um, I was talking to a local restaurant owner, also a Christian, about the cruel comments that people are leaving on some of those food rating apps. You know, you go in, you have your meal, you leave a comment. You give one star or five. But the comments are so negative that the owner and her staff started doubting themselves, even though their food really is good. And she said to me, will you please speak to my chef? He needs to be encouraged. And then she told me, the, the owner of the restaurant just over the way, just over there, is on stress leave for the same reason. So critical are the comments that people are leaving online. We live in a, we live in a critical world, don't we? People say bad things about one another and get away with it. Trolling, whatever you call it. It's a sign of just a, an angry, dark view of the world where people get some kind of pleasure out of hurting others. Well, that's not how Paul is speaking here, is it? In times of trouble, words of genuine encouragement are doubly precious. Words matter and kindness counts. And what we apply to ourselves as Christians, we can also apply to others. For there is a power of encouragement to be had in godly praise. So let's aim to be countercultural in the way we speak to others. It can bring comfort and hope. In fact, it can bring a whole alternative worldview, which can lead to conversation about Christ and the hope that we have in him. What do we have so far then? Well, we've got a model of Christian encouragement that goes something like this. I'll paraphrase for you. Paul saying, my dear friends, I'm so thankful to God for all of you because despite the many hardships you're facing, I can see what God is doing in your lives. 
I can see how patient you've been. I can see how courageous and kind and loving you've been, one to another. And because of that, I want you to know how personally encouraged I am to be your friend and brother in Christ. Or as Paul puts it in verse 4, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions you are enduring. God is with you. You're doing well. Just keep walking. But this is not the only encouragement Paul designs to share with his friends in Thessalonica this morning. Because as we come now to verses 5 to 10, he turns his attention to what I'm going to call the gospel of God's justice. For indeed, God is just, and he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Well, this is terrible news for some, but it's great news for others. The gospel is discriminatory. God does make a distinction between the good and the evil between the right and the wrong, between the faithless and the forgiven. You may not want to hear this, but it is very clearly stated in verses 8 and 9. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of of his power. Well, that could almost be classified as hate speech, the way the world is going now. As we look around our world and see that Pride Month is underway and our PM is uh, prancing across the bridge again today. But God's gospel is discriminatory. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from his mighty power. These are strong words, but they are true and they're necessary and they're loving. And they need to be believed in by all of us today. So believe it and repent. I remember hearing the testimony of a Christian once who lived through the Balkan War. For him, the gospel of God's justice was a great support for his faith. Why? Well, because he knew that he would never see justice in this life for all the cruelty and violence that was done against him and his family. But with Jesus as Lord... He was able to rest secure in the knowledge that one day those who delighted in doing evil would be exposed and that justice for him and his family would finally be done. It was allowing him to leave those injustices to the Lord and to draw comfort from the gospel of God's justice. So that brings me back to that point I was making earlier about how suffering and hope are not mutually exclusive in the Christian life. In fact, they coexist together. And God reconciles this paradox through his justice. So in verse 5, all this is evidence 
But God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. So there will be an accounting. When Christ returns in glory and when this present evil age is brought to an end, the God who is just has promised to set all things right. The evidence of that is seen in the cross where Jesus dies for those who in fact nailed him there for sinners like us. And so today, especially for those who have suffered for their faith, who have been persecuted for their love of Jesus, this is a source of comfort and hope. In fact, it is good news. You can take away my house, you can take away my job, you can take away my family, you can take away my freedom, but you cannot take away my hope that one day you will have to give an account to God for all the trouble you've caused. God's judgment allows suffering and hope to be reconciled even in this life so that we can persevere through our calamities and trials and troubles. And this is Paul's point in verse 5 when he says that all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. What he means is that the Thessalonians are responding to their trials, to their challenges, to their suffering in the right way, in the godly way. In fact, their faith is growing and their faith is increasing. And Paul says all this is evidence. This is the manifest tokens, visible evidence, proof that your faith is living, that you are grounded in the gospel and that you will be saved. Are you willing to suffer for the one in whom you have believed while still growing in your faith and love? If you are, then God is surely right to judge that you are worthy of his kingdom. For what kind of religion or what kind of faith is it that you proclaim but are not willing to suffer anything for? It really does test your faith and prove its genuineness when it's put under pressure. But now what will God do to those who reject his son and persecute his church? Again, according to God's word, he will pay them back and bring them to everlasting destruction or everlasting ruin. So in verse 6 again, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from his mighty power. In short, they will lose everything forever. God will bankrupt them. That's what hell is. Now, hell is, hell is not annihilation. It's eternal ruin. Eternal ruin. God will shut them out of his personal presence forever. 
I remember John Chapman, uh, some of you will know the name, was talking about this very thing. The offensiveness, the sound of the offensiveness of this idea that God will shut them out from his personal presence forever. How can God do that? Well, in fact, to put it another way, God will give them what they want. Having rejected God and wanting nothing to do with God, God simply gives them what they want forever. Well, that's scary. But there's no point in denying it. And there will be many seemingly good and decent people who rely on their own righteousness rather than on Jesus for their salvation who will be undone by this reality. There's a passage in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. There will be many who think that they're doing God a service and are using those actions to try to justify themselves to God. You cannot bypass the cross. It is Jesus who brings that peace which we crave. Therefore, make every effort to be reconciled to God so that the wonderful inheritance of verse 10 can be yours today. Don't run away from Jesus, come to him. Don't be cast out of God's eternal presence. Be welcomed in. Don't be bankrupted by sin. Be enriched and blessed by the Saviour and the bounty that he brings. There is a rest that remains for God's people, a rest from sin and from sorrow, to enter into God's rest in the new creation. But the only way to enter into that rest is through repentance and faith in the one who brings that rest, who is the Lord Jesus himself. And so you can say there are two ways to live. Some of you will know the two ways to live uh, description of the gospel. Basically, we're being invited to recognise that there's no way to life except through Jesus. Choose Christ and live so that on that day when he comes again to be glorified in his holy people and marveled at among all those who have believed, you might be counted in that number. As Paul says here to the Thessalonians, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Well, that's what we need to do too, isn't it? To be included in the number is to believe the gospel, to turn from our sins and receive Jesus as Lord. And now in verses 11 and 12, we have a final word of encouragement in the form of a prayer and a challenge to be getting on with. This is where we get to exercise our faith. If you've had a fall, don't give up. The gospel hasn't changed. Christ is still Lord and life still goes on. As we read in verse 11, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this 
so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's a lot going on in this uh, little final section of our passage today, but it comes down to a final word of encouragement and prayer as a challenge to be getting on with life despite the troubles we face. If you want to encourage someone who's feeling down, the best way to do it is to begin by taking their focus off their troubles and reminding them of the good news of the gospel, the fact that Jesus still loves them. Acknowledge the hurt, acknowledge the pain, but then point them back to Jesus and pray together. Remind them of the Christian hope. See how close you are to the finish. Soon this world and all its troubles will pass away and Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him. God is faithful. You're almost there. Finish the race. Wait for the coming of God's son. His reward is with him and he will not disappoint his people who put their faith in him. What is it that encourages you when you're down? What is it that encourages you to finish what you've started? When you're feeling down, who is it that picks you up? When you've had a setback in life, who is it that helps you to refocus? When you've lost your hope and joy, who gives it back to you? Personally, I find some of the greatest encouragers in my own life are Christians who've suffered the greatest trials. Do you ever find that? Those who've walked through the fires and yet seem to glow with the love of Christ all the more. They've grown through those trials. And so they understand the pain and can bring comfort. Their faith and their joy has grown richer, deeper, stronger. And there's a mystery in that. Then it's a mystery that leads to the cross. Because who has ever suffered more than our Saviour? And who can ever be a greater encourager than him? Today we've seen that the best encouragement in life actually comes from God himself which is why Paul begins all his letters as he does this one with this same basic blessing. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God's unmerited favour and God's perfect peace rest upon you today and upon your family in your life. In human terms, encouragement comes to us from many sources. God leads people, brings people to us in those providential ways. But the fountainhead of all encouragement is ultimately God himself, the God who cares for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, today we've been reminded that God's judgment is real, and yet this is a comfort for God's troubled and persecuted people. Yes, God is just, and the wicked will not escape. But we mustn't be complacent. Because we know that each one of us is really a sinner in the hands of an angry God until we make our peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
I want to read to you again the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question one, what is your only comfort in life and death? Can you say this this morning, that I'm not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ? He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So let me encourage you to persevere in your faith. Suffering and hope are not mutually exclusive in this life. They coexist. But if you've been through a time of unusual suffering, then it may just be that God has chosen you to be an unusual encourager. For as you undergo those baptisms of fire, God is able to prepare you for special works of encouragement for the people of God. Finally, Let's not keep these blessings to ourselves. We've been encouraged today, I hope. There's a powerful encouragement to be had in godly praise. But let's not keep it to ourselves. Just as Paul gave thanks to God for the evidence of faith, love and patience in the church at Thessalonica, so we can encourage one another in our lives today and even the lives of those in our wider community. How can I do that? Let me close with two suggestions. First, I want to suggest that everyone can be an encourager. So who do you want to encourage this week? You want to write them a card? You want to call them up? You want to share something that you can see that God is doing in their lives? Ask them how they're going and pray for them. That's what the Apostle Paul does. And secondly, I think just the whole passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, is a wonderful passage uh, with many practical suggestions in it. I want to suggest make a list of the things that Paul prays about and thanks God for. And then you can turn that list in a way to turn back into prayer to the Lord for persecuted Christians around the world and perhaps for troubled friends as well, knowing that God is faithful and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He's working out his purposes in order to prepare us for glory. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, in this world there are many troubles, but you are the same God whose nature is always to have mercy. Lord, please pour out your mercy upon your troubled people today, that your grace and peace might be sufficient to bring comfort and hope and assurance and newness of life. Forgive us, Lord, when we use our lips to tear down and hurt others. This is not your way. We long to speak the truth, but to speak it in love. Help us, therefore, to do that with the courage and grace that we see the Apostle Paul had and which blessed the Thessalonian church. Father, please bless our church today, each one of us, according to our need. 
that you might prepare us for glory. In Jesus' name, amen.